Uh, we're going to be talking about near-death experiences this morning, and near-death experiences fascinate us. Turns out that uh, they're all over YouTube. Now, don't go and search NDEs, as they're commonly referred to. Squirrel! Right? Stay with me. Stay right here. Don't go searching for near-death experiences, even though it's really, really tempting. We're going to talk about near-death experiences. Experiences You can search that later. Here is why near-death experiences are so fascinating to us. It's because the number of people who die is so shockingly high. It hovers around 100. Not 100 people, but 100%. And because of this, uh, it, it fascinates us, people who, who have gotten near-death experiences and live to tell about it. Now, pre-pandemic, worldwide, 150,000 people every single day step from this life into eternity. Now, that's a huge number. What that translates to is this, ready? Two people every second of every hour of every day. That's a lot of people. Now, if you are uh, hearing this, that's a bit of a wake-up call, right? It ought to be a wake-up call that ought to rise to the level of alarm. But for most of us, I think that alarm is muted much of the time. Imagine that you're in a line and everyone in front of you is eventually stepping off of a cliff never to be seen again. At some point, standing in that line, you are thinking to yourself, is there a way to get out of this line? Is there something I should do that would not allow me to just follow in the footsteps of others? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus tells us and assures us beyond a doubt. Every time you see three crosses, by the way, I went out and took this picture around 7 a.m. this morning. Lovingly, Steve Donato came out and tended to our crosses and put up some Easter lilies for us. Every time you see three crosses, remember there was only one death that occurred that day. You will live even though you die. This is the promise of Jesus. After identifying himself as the resurrection and the life, he gives us these words of assurance. You will live even though you die. Today, Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if you question the resurrection of Jesus, this is the season to investigate. If you're already in the convinced camp, then today is the reason to celebrate. Either way, what I want to do is give you a quick dose of Jesus and Christianity here on this Easter Sunday morning. Now, Easter is lost on many, if not most, in our culture. There's an increasing diversity of beliefs and cultures, and we all kind of mesh together in our country. And because there's a more secular culture that is infusing in and other ideas about what's happening this time of year, um, Easter is confusing at best. Bunnies, a vague sense of new life, dyed eggs, spring break. Um, spring break, by the way, makes you think of a lot of things, none of which really screams Jesus, right? So Easter is confusing, let me give you a few things about Christianity, about what Christianity is not, so you can kind of start at that point, and I'm going to give you a little prequel to how we get to the cross. Christianity is not founded on ideas or philosophies, but rather on a person. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Do you see how that differs from I know the way, or I teach the way, or I point the way? Christianity is founded on the person of Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, Christianity is not about what we must do to get to God, but rather what he does to get to us. This service is just like the incarnation, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. Instead of making you come to church, we're bringing church to you. We are being Christ-like right now by bringing the gospel message into your home. So you can sit in your favorite lazy boy and do what you've always dreamed of doing at church. Maybe it's what stopped you from coming to church. You can wear whatever you want. You can eat your Cheetos. You can sit on your lazy boy and enjoy worship. So here you go. This is our Easter gift to you. Finally, Christianity is not about us serving God, but about God serving us. Again, when you see the cross, think about the fact that the God of the universe is serving his creation. So here's a little prequel, very quickly, um, just sort of getting us up to the point of the cross. For those of you who might be new to this, Jesus was born in a nowhere town to a poor, unwed mother about 2,000 years ago. He was adopted by Joseph, his earthly father, who was engaged to his mother. Most of Jesus' life was spent in relative obscurity until around the age of 30 when he began what's called his public ministry. There are four Gospels in your Bible. They make up the start of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the four Gospels are written to reveal who he is, what he did, and record what he said. A few short years, uh, it, uh, his few short years of public ministry included uh, preaching a message of turning from sin and back to God and to be looking for and be found ready for what he termed the kingdom of God. His life was marked by humble service, uncommon kindness to children, women, the poor, the powerless, and the sick, all of whom were lumped into the have-nots class by those who were in power. Jesus especially angered the religious rule keepers, often called Pharisees. Another sect was the Sadducees. So he, he angered the religious rule keepers who were using their position of authority to rig the game uh, and in the process, boost their own reputation and pad their own pockets. Now, along the lines, if you read the Gospels, all along there is this thread of pointing to the reason that he came. Jesus predicted his own death. Jesus predicted his own resurrection and victory. Cryptically at first, but then gradually as the story unfolds, Jesus begins to be more and more clear about what was to come. Leading up to the cross, what we see in the Gospels is this. Did you know that only two of the Gospels mention Christmas? That's what we celebrate, the birth of Jesus Christ. But all four devote significant amounts of their testimony to the final week leading up to the cross. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke take about a third of their Gospel, and John takes a full 50% of his Gospel to focus on the last week of Jesus Christ. Good Friday commemorates his, his murder. Easter celebrates his resurrection. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're in a series teaching through Luke, but we're going to fast forward on this Easter Sunday to the very end and look at an encounter. You may have heard of the last words of Christ. There are seven words from the cross that are sometimes talked about, and last words are incredibly important. We're going to look at some last words of Jesus today. The last words of someone's life are pregnant with meaning. 
Perhaps you've had that experience of being uh, near someone, a loved one who's about to die, and, and you get a sense that, that they're going to be leaving any, any moment from this life. And so we lean in close, and we, we try to be as present in that moment as we can, holding on to every word that's being said. Why? Because last words are communicating what is on this person's mind. Jesus is clearly communicating not only what he's thinking, But he's revealing his character from the cross, and he's actually telling us further about his purpose. J. Oswald Sanders, about the last words of Christ, says this, There is an ocean of truth in a drop of speech. So we're going to look at one of these last words of Jesus today. Now, talking about near-death experience, we're going to look through the eyes of, of one of the criminals, the thief, who met Jesus on the cross and followed him to life. Now, as an adrenaline junkie, uh, I've had my own share of planned and unplanned near-death experiences. This is not a picture of me sitting on Half Dome. This is Alex Honnold, who scaled it without ropes, and he's sitting here sort of enjoying the view partway up. Adrenaline junkies have this gene in them that it's not a death wish. It just feeds their soul to find limits and find extremes and get right near the edge of those. Of course, what we call extreme, uh, another generation calls lunch break. Uh, So it's all kind of relative, isn't it? Some of you enjoy participating and writing in, so we have a live chat feature, and here's your first live chat that you can can post. What one word tells us where your heaviest near-death experience occurred? Okay, so write those in. If you've, if you've had a near-death experience, you can, you can write the location of that. Now, that's as an adrenaline junkie. As a pastor, I also have uh, some near-death experience, but it's altogether different than being an adrenaline junkie. You see, I hang around and think about death more than the average person. Why? Because hospital rooms and graveside services are just part of the gig. If I ever fill out a resume someday for some future job and it asks for experiences, I will put, I've been around death a lot. I'm not sure how that might help me, but you never know. We'll, we'll see how that comes to fruition. Being near death changes me every time without fail. I only have to attend a funeral, not be the star uh, person in the funeral, which is the person who died. I only have to attend someone else's death and celebration of life to be, to be able to experience this change that being near death occurs in me. You see, I, I come back and I drive away from a situation like that, and the value of time seems extra poignant to me. Just sitting at my dinner table that night and looking at the faces of my precious family and, and the power of a shared meal around a shared table takes on new significance. Here's a second live chat question if you want, if you want to, to jump in on it. How, has being, uh, how, how did being near death change your life? You know, death is something that's common to all, but the reaction to death could not be more diverse. Some people avoid death at all costs, even the mere mention of death. Oh, pish posh. Well, anyway... If you ever hear someone say that and you are emotionally unintelligent, that is code for, this is an unsafe topic. Please move on to the next topic. Some people avoid this at all costs. They cannot show up at the funeral. They cannot go to the hospital room. Others display huge bravado when it comes to death. They say, I'm ready and I'm I'm ready to meet my maker and all these things. 
But experience tells me this. A lot of times, people who are barking the loudest about how brave they are and how unfearful they are of death reminds you of a barking chihuahua, right? There's lots of bravado, but when the actual moment comes, like a bubble of pride, it pops, and there's no substance to it. Some people run from it at all costs. Some uh, charge into it with a lot of pride. You know, eternity and what is on the other side gets precious little attention here in the Silicon Valley on any given normal week. Are you with me in agreeing that there are no, no normal weeks right now? We're in a season where literally on our screens, hourly if we want to, but certainly daily we are seeing death numbers posted, number of cases worldwide posted. There are websites that actually track this in real time, and, and this topic that, that on any given week is often pushed to the side and distracted, uh, distracted with something else is front and center. Usually the topic of death uh, sits in this quadrant um, of the highly important but not urgent, right? That's where people like to keep the topic of death, and all of a sudden it's front and center. Let me ask you this question, as our own mortality and the mortality of our loved ones and our acquaintances hits close to home, how are you doing? How is this topic, this season changing you? I'm here to offer you hope and proclaim to you a sure way to be saved from certain death. Now, if you're like me, it's a struggle to pay attention at church. I can't imagine being at home with all the other options that might be there, how distracting it might be. So if that's you, here is the sermon in a single sentence, okay? Over here, pay attention to your screen, to your phone. Here's the sermon in one sentence. You ready? I'm going to give it to you. Jesus experienced death so that we don't have to. That's what I'm driving at today. Jesus experienced death so that we don't have to. Today we're going to listen to God's heart and actions and words to a formerly convicted thief who became a confessing believer. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39, here we go. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, you, today you will be with me in paradise." Now, I tend to decorate my office with assorted things, and one of my favorite things is to decorate with uh, artwork that kids have done. Now, my apologies to my own children if you drew this, but this has been sitting on my uh, wall for a couple years. This is the inspiration, okay? This is the inspiration for this morning. Uh, This is what I'm looking at here on this little page. So if you remember drawing this for me, and I often put up pictures of other kids in our church, would you please let me know? That would be kind of fun and special to know that you made it to Easter service. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. If you're taking notes, um, then, then you can do this fill-in. If not, you can simply uh, follow along pretty simply here. But what I want to do is this. I want to look at the criminal, all this from the criminal's perspective. First, I want to look at his near-death words. Remember, this is the criminal's last words as well. 
So what is on this criminal's heart? What's on his mind? Maybe there's no loved one to lean in and listen close and carefully, but we have it recorded for us. And first we're going to look at his near-death words to the other criminal. That's where he starts. And what I want to do is show you there, there are sort of three things that we see here. Number one is, is reverence. Do you not fear God? Uh, this criminal revealed his astonishment that just as they were going to meet their maker, there was this sense of pride moving forward. And this man ignored the obvious. Proverbs says that without the fear of God, or, or, or the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This criminal, this guy is on his way. In rebuking his fellow criminal, um, he was letting his own fear of God slip out in his words. You know, near-death experiences changes a person, but not automatically. It doesn't have to change the person. In fact, sadly, we don't see any record of the other criminal doing anything but moving forward in his life the way that he lived the rest of his life, never turning from his pride. So the first words out of the criminal's mouth have to do with reverence. The second have to do with introspection. Look at verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. This is really powerful. Instead of blame shifting, instead of making excuses, uh, excuses, instead of rationalizing his wrong, this man is acknowledging it. Being near death causes soul searching. Again, not automatically, but being near death causes us some soul searching. Once a person admits their sin, they are not far from being saved. Jesus, of course, said, I've come not to heal those who are healthy, but those who are sick. Of course, we're all sick, but those who admit it, those who see it, those are the ones who take interest in a doctor all of a sudden. We live in this remarkable time when most people who do believe in a heaven or hell squarely place themselves in the camp of those going to heaven. They see themselves as a good person ignoring the testimony of the Bible, ignoring their own conscience, even ignoring their own mouth of what they condemn in others, they, they excuse themselves. The, the Bible calls this being self-righteous. And someone who's self-righteous is in a particular kind of danger because they don't even see a need for forgiveness. They don't even see a need for being made right outside of themselves. This thief confessed his sorry state, and he knew the punishment that was deserved. People die because people sin. It is the just reward of sinners in a fallen world. It's the penalty, and this man observed that. He also has an accurate view of God. He's reverencing Jesus, and he now has an accurate view of himself. By his own testimony, he's confessing to be a sinner. And now we proclaim him, or now, now we see him open his mouth and proclaim a right view of Jesus. Here it is. But this man has done nothing wrong. He turns his attention from the other criminal to, to, to reference Jesus. This man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. So thirdly, we see endorsement. Uh, we're in a political season, and so endorsement is sort of a, a buzzword that we're hearing a bunch about right now. Near-death experiences have the capacity to change a man. It was certainly the case for this guy. Earlier in the day, during his crucifixion, this criminal was doing the same thing that he had done every other day of his life, and that was living a life rebellious of God. Matthew twenty-seven forty-four says this, And the robbers, plural, 
who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. What we see is this criminal was going along with the crowd, going along with everyone else, maligning and mocking and belittling Jesus. And now we see that something has changed. We don't know what changed. Maybe it was the way Jesus carried himself. Maybe it was some of the words uh, that, that, he, that, he, that he said. In fact, just prior to this, um, he has prayed forgiveness on those who were murdering him. This man went from deriding Jesus to now defending Jesus. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Let me quickly show you that this verdict, Jesus has done nothing wrong, runs through the entire course of the storyline. Pilate, the Roman governor, tried him twice and found nothing wrong with him. In fact, he ceremonially washed his hands of this man's blood. His wife declared Jesus innocent and made sure that Pilate knew that and didn't convict him wrongly. Herod, a fellow Roman ruler, found nothing to convict about Jesus, and so instead, for sport, he just mocked and made fun of Jesus. Judas, the betrayer, changed his mind, racked with guilt. He flipped his testimony and declared Jesus innocent. The centurion at the base of the cross, whose job it was to kill people, professional executioner, looks at Jesus. What's his verdict? Surely this man was innocent. And the crowds are recorded as saying they left the scene, beating their breasts in regret of what had just happened. Jesus did nothing wrong. Under a legal, secret trial by night, Jesus is tried unfairly and judged unjustly. Jesus could have opened his mouth, created testimony that would have had to have been dealt with, but he kept silent in this. Why? Because he knew his mission, so he didn't stop the mistreatment. John chapter 10, 15 says this, I lay down my life for the sheep, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The innocent one who's done nothing wrong lays down his life willingly for the sinner. Now the man turns and speaks directly to Jesus, not just referencing him. I want you to listen to the experience of this man going from a life of sin that he's convicted of, that his crimes are written below him or above him, and he turns to a life of joy and freedom in moments. Here are the near-death words of this man to Jesus. First, he calls him Lord. He confesses Jesus as master. He didn't just call uh, out for a lack of reverence in the other man. He demonstrated it by himself, his own mouth now giving testimony. A spark of faith has, has stirred in him, and he now has a right understanding of Jesus, his innocence, and is now addressing him uh, as God in human flesh. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, of course, this wasn't written yet, so he couldn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but he's giving living proof of this, this testimony written uh, later on by Paul. Oh, that our last words would find coming out of our mouth reverence for God, fear of God. Not just saved up for our deathbed, not just saved up for our final moments, but throughout our life. How about the next words? Next words he says is, remember me. 
He saw Jesus as Savior. He heard Jesus pray for the forgiveness of sinners who were killing him. And he dared to see himself in the wide embrace of Jesus as he makes that prayer. Remember me. How simple and childlike is that request? It's all he knows to say. Aren't you glad that God sees the humble heart and doesn't grade us on our speech? And he says this, when you come into your kingdom. This man had some sense of Jesus as a king. Uh, the eyes of faith for this man saw beyond the current circumstances. You would not look at this, this, the current circumstances of Jesus and, and somehow get the idea that his, he's a king. But the eyes of faith saw beyond the current circumstances which were temporary and into a future reality which is eternal. Uh, someone in the chat write this down. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. Hebrews 2, 8 to 9. If you want to get there really quickly, you can. But, but I came across this this week just, just in reading my Bible, and it speaks so powerfully into this week and this theme. It says this, and again, we're all reading Scripture and living life in, in different times, and so different aspects, different uh, little glories of the Word of God shine through in different ways. Hebrews 2, 8 and 9 says this, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Jesus is King. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in control. There is coming a future day when all will be set right. But it's not today. Hear this in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. The criminal on the cross could have said the same thing. Listen to this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And it goes on to say this, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the one who tasted death as a substitute for those who would trust in him. Jesus will not ignore the plea of a sinner. Isn't that good news? Jesus will not ignore the plea of a sinner. While he maintained an eloquent silence throughout his entire sham trial, Jesus doesn't ignore the sinner's prayer. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What certainty, what immediacy this is, truly, today. Note that Jesus doesn't grant the exact request that the criminal was asking for. He actually offers something much better. He says, not only will I let you just live in my kingdom or just slip into my kingdom, you will be with me. If you're new to this, there's a lot of scripture that would just help you shine light on this, but let me express this to you, that the gift Jesus offers is his very self. It's not that we're just saved by a hero and then he invites us to come and live in his guest room. No, we are adopted into the hero's own family. He speaks of us this way. It's not like this is like a child to me. He says this is a child to me. It's been legally made so. We take on his name, we take on his ways, we take on his inheritance, we take on his standings. 
As you grow up in Christ, you'll begin to look more and more like your hero, but your standing before Christ never changes. You have been made daughter. You have been made son. God has declared it so, and that will never change. While the historical fact of Jesus' death on a cross is vital to know and understand, so too is the theological meaning of the cross. Why is the cross of all things this symbol of Christians around the world? 1 Corinthians 15, 3. This is just one of the most succinct pictures of what's going on at Easter and why we commemorate his murder, but also celebrate his resurrection. Here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Here's the theological significance in a nutshell. Jesus died as a substitute. He experienced death so that sinners don't have to. Humans all have a sin problem. This isn't just a little cold that will go away or we can get by on our own. This is a deadly virus that sooner or later will kill us. That's the human condition. God does what no person can do on their own. He satisfies the payment for sin, which is dead. Hebrews says quite plainly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. All of your Old Testament is a shadow pointing ahead to the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world once and for all. This is how friendship with God is made possible. Uh, the, the, the cross bridges the gap to God, which must be leaned on by faith. We must lean wholly on the, the offer of the gospel. It's like walking across a bridge. Our only part is to put our trust in it, to lean on it completely. It's by grace alone, said the reformers. And we call that and echo that through the centuries. I referenced this verse before, but looking back on the cross, here's Paul, and I wanted you to see it in print. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. I can't think of a better picture of this promise than this former thief. You see, we all have a former title. We can call him a former convicted thief because now he's a beloved child of God who will spend eternity in paradise with Jesus. Don't you love that that the thief had no time to rip himself off the cross and go get baptized? He didn't have time to rip himself off the cross and go start attending church on a regular basis. He didn't rip himself off the cross and help little old ladies across the street. He didn't give a dime to the church. He didn't start ministries and orphanages. This thief on the cross, what did he say? Lord, how do we know what's going on in, our, in a heart of another human being? We don't. That's not our job. We can take on the words of Jesus who sees the humble heart that he must have believed in his heart. Why? Because he was declared righteous from the only one who matters, the eternal righteous judge. 
I want to close with some thief thoughts, all right? These are thief thoughts for us, and, um, and, and, and this is the, the, the powerful picture. When you see the thief on the cross, we get to see in real time what does it look like for a hopeless sinner, that person, maybe you, who thinks, I could never be made right. I've done too much wrong. I've spilled too much milk. There's no possible way to get it cleaned up. Friends, I want you to see in the scriptures, and and if you're a believer already, cling to this truth. Let the power of the scriptures warm you today, invigorate you today with courage and hope to realize that in a moment, we go from rebel to saved child of God. And here's what's really powerful. The hope that is ours has a whole bunch of things uh, that, that, that aren't attached to it, that a lot of times people attach to it. Here's the first one. There's no big words or no special code words that need to be used. God sees the humble heart. He's not a speech teacher grading you on the words. Maybe you go, I don't know the magic words, neither did the thief. I don't really know fancy theological words. Good. Remember me is what the, Jesus, is what the thief said to Jesus. Here's the second one. Hope is yours without any proof of sincerity. Salvation comes in an instant. I've had the privilege of watching a few people take their very first breath. Now, even though life started before then, I got to witness their first breath here in this world. And it's a picture of what Jesus says. You must be born again. And in an instant, you are brought from death to life. And that's the beautiful picture we see. No proof of sincerity necessary. Here's another one. No help from humans. Hope is yours. The offer of the gospel is yours without any help from humans. Let me teach you a formula. Ready? The cross plus nothing equals salvation. The cross plus nothing equals salvation. No human could possibly help. This is the direct access we have with God, if God can save someone hanging on a, on a bloody cross in a public setting, surely he can reach down and save people through the world wide web who hear a message and say, I want to place my whole trust on the cross. So hope is yours without any hope from humans. Two more. Hope is yours without any delay. Don't you love that Jesus says today? It's immediate. There's not some lengthy time to be absent from the body. We've talked about this this body of ours being a little bit like a wetsuit. It is breaking down slowly over time. The more we use the wetsuit, the more it breaks down. There is coming a day we will peel off our bodies like a wetsuit. Again, I hang around funeral homes more than the average person. That's not the person laying there. That's an old wetsuit. The Bible promises this for those in Christ to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's huge reassurance in that. So there's no delay today. Hope is available right now. There's no aisle you need to walk. Uh, There's no baptism you need to have, no church membership, no serving record. Um, If you live long enough, I hope all those things come. I think Jesus will tell you to do some of those things. And I believe the Spirit will awaken you to have desires to do those kinds of things. Because God promises to give us a new heart. But here's the beauty. Salvation is yours with no delay Here's the last one. Also, hope is yours with no doubt. Isn't it a gift? Some of the last words of Jesus are promising a very external public sinner 
assurance of salvation, saying truly today, you'll be with me in paradise. The offer is yours today. And here's the catch. Only the humble of heart will find this good news. Only those who say, I am a sinner and have, a, have an introspective moment to be able to look at their life will be able to hear the gospel call and see the value of what Jesus offers. Here's my invitation to you. Maybe today you say, that's not me. I'm not convinced. Pastor, you haven't done it. I don't know if I believe all that. I know that. That's okay. Do you know that every single Sunday, except for the last few weeks, uh, we have people sitting in this very room who are just checking out the claims of Jesus Christ. Maybe they're just sort of checking out God in general, and they thought maybe a church is a good place to start. I want to invite you in the safety of your own home to to be checking this out more. We're we're going to be doing this uh, every week for the foreseeable future, and there's coming a day. Uh, I'm a man of faith. I hope to get to meet you if you're brand new to our church, but there's coming a day when we will gather again together. But if You say today, I want to receive that today, right now in the quietness of your heart. You get to say the simple, no code, no big words, cry out to Jesus, and he will hear the sinner's plea. You know, Jesus with the thief on the cross reminds me of this psalm. It's found in Psalm 14, chapter 2, and it says this, the Lord builds up Jerusalem Listen to this. This must be this criminal's life verse if he had time to make one. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. I leave you with this powerful message. The same God who created and knows and calls by name every star that you see tonight created you, knows your name, makes invitation to you personally, knows individually what's going on in your life and will receive your plea, remember me. God, we thank you so much for the scriptures, for the testimony of the written word of God. We don't just look at the words of Jesus. Jesus, you alone packaged the whole scriptures together, validating the law and the prophets. God, in 1 Corinthians we read this morning, it keeps referencing back according to the scripture. God, you saw fit to keep a record that we could then go back and reference, go back and read and look at. God, thank you for stirring our hearts to meet on this Easter morning. You have risen indeed. We pray this morning to a risen and alive Jesus Christ who's active and powerful in our world. God, right now, we just afresh give our hearts, or maybe for the very first time, we we just say, God, welcome us into your kingdom. Remember us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.